The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. It's my favorite day of the year. It is? Yeah, Halloween. It's my favorite holiday, by far and wide. Uh... I, I, I have always enjoyed it since I was a kid. And I don't know for any other reason other than I think it's, um, it's a day of everyone's being different. Right. And um, it's also a day where everyone's completely overindulging in most other people's addiction, which is sugar. Right. And so, um, you know, it, and it's also for me, it's a marker of, oh, God, the holidays are coming up. And um, every year that we've done this and every year that I've you know, worked in the field of addiction, I've always started to say, all right, guys, well, you know, the holidays are coming up. And, you know, if you're struggling with addiction, do something about it. And if you're you know, just out of rehab, uh, the thing about it is you're forced into social interactions that you might not else be doing any other time of the year. So it's a time when you get together with extended family and stuff like that. And if you're an active addict, you really have to kind of keep your you know what together as best as you can. Um, and a lot of times it unravels because at least for me during the holidays, I would be I would feel like I was stuck in a house with a bunch of people and I couldn't get out. And of course I didn't have enough drugs to get me through. So I'd always have to come up with these weird excuses why I need to leave the house and then be gone for four hours. Um, and so the idea that if active addicts are going to spend the holidays with the family, you're not going to have an uneventful holiday season. They're going to still be an addict as they were before the holidays and the same as they'll be after the holidays unless they get help. That's right. And, um, and the other thing is, even if they're in recovery, you know, so you're at a family gathering and you've got Uncle Maury and Uncle Maury always has too much to drink for the holidays. Yep. And, you know, you got to sit there and watch that. And you're like, I'm trying to be clean. And here he is just like, you know, yeah, so that's... drunk, he's falling over, you know, it's, it's a stressful time. And, you know, I just, I, I think that... It, you know, there needs to be, and I know you're working on this, we're, we're sending out emails, everybody, if you're not on Jason's email list, you need to contact us and we will add you to the email list. Because, you know, Jason's working on a survival guide for the holidays. And it's yep. good for the addict, it's good for the recovering addict, it's good for the family and friends of addicts. It's, it's really important, I think. It's extremely important. And the other thing I have to bring up, because it makes me extremely upset, Every year when I hear this happening, and you said something about um, if you're a uh, if you're a recovered addict and you're forced into these situations with you know family overindulging and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean every year the thing that bothers me the most, and a lot of families out there are going to have a holiday season this year with their loved one who's fresh out of rehab sometime this year since the last holidays. And every year I hear it going badly in one way, shape, or form when. A lot of times it's the parents. They say, oh, it's okay. I mean, they were heroin addicts. I mean, they shouldn't, they shouldn't, they should be okay for them to have a glass of wine or a beer with, you know, the family. And it always turns out badly. So anyone that's listening who has a loved one that's done rehab at any point, the holidays is not a reason to let them drink. Do not. Drinking alcohol is never a good idea. And I know it's like this social lubricant that we use to, you know, grease our conversations and stuff like that with people that we don't really want to talk to. And, you know, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take it a step further, Jason, because here's the thing. If you have a loved one who has dealt with alcohol or drug addiction, and you're having a holiday get together, you don't need to have alcohol there. 
You could have cider, you can have a sparkling cider, you can have O'Doul's beer, you do not need to have alcohol there. And if you really love that person and care about that person, I think that's something you should take a look at doing for the holidays. You don't need the alcohol. I agree. I agree. And alcohol is always, always, always the entry point into a relapse. I see it all the time. And I say always because it's, I constantly see this because anyone that relapses or reverts back to drug use always starts with drinking alcohol becomes okay again, then smoking weed becomes okay again, and then popping pills and doing heroin and sniffing coke becomes okay again, and then it's game over. Like alcohol is not a good idea. And alcohol is the most prevalent drug in any holiday get together, holiday dinner, holiday party. It's always brimming with alcohol. And you, you, and I say you, you families need to be careful of what's in your house and what's available to the person that's gone through treatment because sometimes when a person leaves treatment and say it's been like two or three months or even six months since they went and got help and got clean, there's a part of them, and I know this because I went through it, that doesn't trust themselves yet with alcohol might test that boundary. And it's not at all remotely okay for the family to allow it because it could be extremely, extremely destructive. I mean, there's no hangover from a Coke. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, have a Coke, eat dinner, talk to people, don't talk to people, you know, learn how to communicate, use what you learned in treatment, kind of keep yourself together, handle your anxiety the best way you know how to do, and, and get through it. You know, holidays are tough for people beyond addicts and their families, but addicts and their families have it especially hard because it is a difficult time of year, especially for those families who've lost somebody. Right. So, but, you know, because here's the thing, Jason. Let's say I invited you over to my house for Thanksgiving dinner, okay? Right. I know you're not going to drink, but I would not sit there and drink a glass of wine in front of you because I don't think it's appropriate. Do you know? And yeah. I think that families listening need to get that idea. If you've got a recovered addict that's going to be at your holiday gathering, don't have alcohol. If you are listening and you need alcohol to have a good time, well, then you might want to look at some form of treatment. I'm just saying. I'm completely, completely, completely. I'm just saying. Completely. And I, I, I can't stress this enough. And so that's why I'm making this, you know, surviving the holidays uh, 101 guide because a lot of families and people fall into these traps. And they are traps because. Once you get snared, you're, you're pretty much – it's almost game over. And so I want families to take some suggestions that I've made to make everything like real smooth, real easy, and better than it could be if you don't. And so we're going to send that out soon, and um, it's about to go up on the website in the next uh, day or two. So Good. I'm, looking, and, and I'm if, looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to saving some families uh, – some drama and some headaches this holiday season. Good. And if you want us to email it to you, there's a couple different ways you could go about it. You could go to the Facebook page, the Addiction Podcast Point of No Return, and message us and give us an email address. Yep. Is it okay if I give them your email address, Jason? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Jason's email is jgood, G-O-O-D, at narcononsuncoast.org. And narconon is N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N. So jgood at narcononsuncoast.org. Give him your email address. We'll add you to the list, and we'll send you that survival guide because I think it's going to be extremely helpful. Absolutely, absolutely. And I wish I had it during the holiday seasons. I wish my family had it because – you know, there's some basic things that families don't look at as a problem, and it is a problem. And so, like I said, I want to save some people some headaches and drama. 
and let's get through this intact. Yep. So to speak. I like it. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk to Chris Waite-Labotte. Chris is a registered nurse, and she has been in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction for 13 years. She wrote a book about her journey and self-published it just over three years ago. She hopes to raise awareness and to help those suffering find hope, which is something we can relate to here on the podcast, and to let people know that recovery is possible. She lost a lot, but she's regained a lot of it and so much more. Her goal is to spread awareness about the devastating effects of addiction so that we can reduce its stigma and encourage others to reach out for the help they so desperately need. Without further ado, let's welcome Chris Waite-Labotte to the podcast. Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you being here and sharing your story with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So typically, my first question is, how did you get started on drugs? Well, I would have to say things really started for me back in college. Um, I've been a nurse for 27 years now, so college was a while ago. Um, But my first addiction really was alcohol. And I discovered that in college, found I liked it a lot. It made me feel a lot better about myself and drank way more than I should have, more than my friends did, and ended up taking six years to get my four-year degree. But I did get it, and I went off and became a nurse and went to work and kind of backed off on the drinking some. Um, So it was years really later that I had my first um, exposure to opiates. And I had a surgical procedure and was prescribed Percocet, and I found that I really liked it. Compared to alcohol, it was much easier to manage life with pills and still feel good. So that was my first experience with them. Uh, I didn't really abuse them then. I got a refill when I probably didn't really need it and made many excuses to take more Percocet, so I didn't really abuse it. I didn't take it when I was working. I didn't seek more, that kind of thing. Didn't take more than I was supposed to. Right. Uh, but just really liked it. Like, I just remember feeling so peaceful when I took it and warm and cozy. Um, so <laughs> over the next handful of years, I, if I threw my back out, if it wasn't even that bad, I would go to the doctor and request something. And they always gave it to me. Uh, if I had a toothache, I would ask for something. Usually Vicodin is what people would prescribe for whatever reason. Not real often did I do that, but oh, maybe a handful of times in the, the you know five years or so after that. It's kind of amazing how easy so it is to get, it. isn't it? Yeah, so it really is easy to get. Less so now, I think, than it was then. But So then I was working in the emergency room at the time, and I, for whatever reason, one day I just kind of thought to myself, we threw away an awfully lot of really good drugs here. And so I started taking them. It wasn't a conscious choice, like I'm going to take stuff. Uh, it was just kind of a, like a realization, oh, like I could do this. So I started taking waste, so the stuff that we would throw away, you know, give the patient their dose, and instead of throwing it away, I would take it. Um, take it home, and it was all IV drugs, because that's what you use in an emergency room for the most part. Uh, and I found myself 
looking forward to it. I didn't steal it from stock and I didn't, um, didn't seek it out necessarily. And I had myself convinced that because I'm just taking the garbage, I wasn't really doing anything wrong. That denial is still, still very strong. Right. And, uh, I probably did that, that way for a couple of years. And then I had my first, uh, taste, if you will, of fentanyl, IV fentanyl, um, which we hear a lot about now in news, but it's also a, a pharmaceutical medication they use in the hospital for severe pain. Right. And so the first time I took the waste of that, I remember just feeling like that was an incredible experience. Like, oh my goodness, that is amazing. And I had an immediate craving for more. So once I took that, I started stealing it from the stock. I was also going through a divorce at the time, so I was feeling very emotionally bad. So I think being that it was fentanyl, and fentanyl is just so very addictive, and being emotionally vulnerable, I started stealing from the stuff, you know, the stuff that is in the medication cabinet. It wasn't the Um, waste at that point. It was the good stuff, so to speak. I was actually stealing and I knew I was stealing, and I couldn't obviously um, deny that anymore. But I was so um, every time. So every time I took some, it was always going to be my last time. I never set out when I went to work to steal any. So I would go to work swearing up and down, "I'm never doing it again. It's going to be. I'm going to have a good shift. I'm going to go. This is." I had a plan, you know, I'm going to go right to the office and talk to whoever and it'll be fine. But the minute I would walk in those doors, I would just have this compulsion to go to the stock. And um, it got to the point where I was taking some, stealing something every time I went to work. So it didn't take them a whole, you know, long, it's just a few months, but it didn't take them too terribly long to figure out it was me. So then I was fired, of course, and charged with you know, like 26 felonies and my whole world crashed. Um, and that was in 2001. I'm sorry, 2005. Okay. And, and so after, I, I can't even like explain how much of a devastation that was. Like, I mean, I don't know what I thought, you know, in my mind that I think I was going to just be able to continue like that forever. Um, but like I said, I just, I was convinced that I wasn't going to do it again. Like every time I took it, it was the last time. Right. And I think they could verify 26 times that I took it. So each of those 26 times, I absolutely had myself convinced it wouldn't happen again. This will be the last time, which is so silly, but it's amazing what that denial and what that disease will tell you. Right. Make you believe. So from there, um, I, I don't know how much of my story you want me to keep going, if you want me just to keep going. But, I'll keep um, going. It's fascinating. Okay. I, I, I'll stop you just for one second, because it, it, Jason and I talk a lot about how these days, you know, um, a lot of the overdoses are occurring because of heroin laced with fentanyl or cocaine laced with fentanyl or now even marijuana laced with fentanyl. So when you said fentanyl was your drug of choice, 
Jason had to kind of educate me or remind me, if you will, that fentanyl is actually a legitimate uh, painkiller that is used for people. And right. and so, yeah, so it, it was just interesting. I, I yeah, I, I didn't think with that, but it makes, you know, I can see that now. It Okay, no, continue yeah. with your story by all means. Okay. Well, and I would say about fentanyl too is most people don't know that it's a drug they use in the hospital. Right. Most people, I don't think, necessarily know that. But what is happening now with heroin, it's 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. So it's super powerful. Wow. When I took it at the hospital, I knew what I was taking. It you know, comes in micrograms, and you know, I knew what I was taking. So the odds of me overdosing, had I, as long as I stuck to my plan of what I was going to take, it was, it was okay. I, I didn't overdose. But what they're doing now is they're manufacturing it in China and then shipping it over here as a powder and then, yeah, cutting it in with fentanyl and marijuana and nobody has any idea what strength it is. Right. So they're they're overdosing on because they have no idea what they're taking. Right. So it's so, it's so deadly and it's so addictive. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, there was a huge difference between when I took morphine that I loved. I loved morphine. That was an opiate. That was my thing. But there was a huge difference between how I felt when I took morphine and how I felt when I took fentanyl. Fentanyl gave me an immediate craving. Like, I wanted more of that right away. Like wow. I, it's wow. just It was a, a huge difference. Um, so, those, I, I mean, I, I really think fentanyl should be uh, used minimally. Like, I think it shouldn't be used anywhere near the amount it is. But like maybe end of life other. or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Or severe trauma, or certainly there are uses for it because it's a very effective pain management medication. Um, but it's so addictive. You just have to be super careful. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so, so you got arrested. So I got arrested and charged with 26 felonies for each time they could prove I stole a vial. Um, and I... I had never been in trouble before. I didn't have a speeding ticket, nothing. I was an exemplary nurse. I had never had a bad review or an eval on a yearly eval. Um, I was an elite team of nurses in the hospital where we went to other hospitals to bring patients back to our hospitals for specialized care. I mean, I was very, uh, a very good nurse. And so none of my coworkers had any idea what I was doing. So there was sadness and shock and disbelief when this happened. So I had all of that emotional stuff, uh, but then all the legal stuff as well and the stuff with my kids because my kids were 4 and 14 when that happened. Um, and it ended up, after all the legal stuff worked itself out, um, I ended up with one misdemeanor and probation, three years of probation. And so I kind of felt this huge relief but I certainly lost my nursing license because they don't like it when you steal drugs from the hospital. And I was using while I was working at the end. So um, I definitely needed to be taken out of practice. Right. So I lost my nursing license. And um, this all happened in July. And by October, the legal stuff had worked, like I said, it worked itself out. And I um, had just a misdemeanor in probation. And I really felt a load off. Like I had... I don't know, like, you know, phew, I really dodged a bullet there. You know, it, it could have been so much worse. Right. Uh, and then I 
went to, uh, I applied for jobs everywhere because now, of course, I don't have a nursing license. So I'm too uh, qualified to work. Like I've tried everywhere, McDonald's, other restaurants, um, Kmart, all those kind of places. And nobody there would hire me. And I couldn't work as a nurse, obviously. So I applied at doctor's offices as a secretary. And I got a couple interviews. And one of them, I just kind of poured my heart out and told my whole story and how I was, you know, ready to to get my life back on track and gave him this whole story and super nice doctor. And he had a small practice and hired me to be his secretary. So I did that. And within a week of starting there, I was calling in prescriptions for myself under his name. Uh. I, it was, it, it makes me sad now because he was so nice and kind to give me that opportunity. And I, um, I was still so sick. I just, I couldn't, uh, I had been drinking during that time, you know, during getting fired from my job and getting this job. So I was never really sober enough to deal with what was happening. I was just getting by and drinking so that to deal with all of that. Right. Um, I, even though I was going to 12 step meetings and going to therapy, I still couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I just couldn't. And so like I said, within a week of working there, I was calling in prescriptions for myself. I worked there about three months and called in prescriptions for myself about nine times. <laughs> and um, on the ninth time, when I was sitting in line at the pharmacy, and so again, I will tell you, every time I called in the prescription, it was always the last one. I mean, I absolutely had myself convinced that I was never going to do it again. This mm-hmm. was going to be the only time. I'm done. After this, I'm going to get all the help I need and everything's going to be great. But just for now, I need. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you need further information on the podcast itself, go to our Facebook page and reach out to us. If you'd like further information on Narconon, call 1-877-339-3324. That's 1-877-339-3324. Three, three, two, four. Right. So um, on that last time, I remember driving to the pharmacy and praying, like, God, please help me. I don't want to do this, but I couldn't not do it. Like the thought would come in my mind and I would just automatically call in that prescription. Like I, could, I had no fight against it. Right. And so I was praying uh, all the way to that pharmacy and I pulled into the pharmacy and it was taking an awfully long time, and the pharmacist, you know, poked his head out, and he said, oh, I'm sorry it's taking so long. We'll be, you know, right with you. And, and I saw a police car pull up, mm. actually, to the car next to me, and I knew they were there for me. We had a very similar car. And I just kind of said, God, that is not the kind of help I was asking for. So, and I kind of just knew, I just knew they were there for me. So I was arrested again, um, and this time charged with nine felony, and I didn't leave jail then for four months after that. And um, one of the felonies stuck, so I'm a felon now. And that was, that four months of jail was really what it took for me to clear my mind. Like I had to be taken away from all of everything so that I could, my mind could clear from the drugs and the alcohol, just be clear. And I could see what I needed to do to be clean and sober. Right. Otherwise, if I had access to it in that early time, I couldn't I couldn't say no to it. Once I got out after four months, I was ready. I went. I was completely um, 
completely enmeshed in my 12-step program. I followed my sponsor around, did everything she told me. Um, I couldn't get a job anywhere at that point. Hey, Chris, I want to then... stop you just for a second. So you, yeah. you went through withdrawal in jail? Is that how you got clean? Yes. What is with, um, what is not a, I was going to say what is withdrawal like from fentanyl? I don't know that we've talked about that ever on the podcast. Well, it's like any other opiate. No, okay. I didn't. So when I called in prescriptions for myself, it was just for Vicodin. Oh, um, okay. I didn't get fentanyl. Um, I don't know if I could have. Okay. Maybe I could have. I don't know. Um, but it was just Vicodin pill. I see. So but you when, you're withdrawing from Vicodin then? Right. Okay. But it's they're all opiates, so withdrawal is the same. Um, I didn't have bad withdrawal because I did not use 24-7. When I was at the hospital and stealing it, I worked two 12-hour shifts a week, so that was the only time I got any. When I was at the doctor's office over three months, I called in nine prescriptions. Okay. So I had space enough in between that I didn't ever, I won't say I never went through detox. I had some nausea and vomiting and body aches. Um, but nothing like people go through who are on like heroin and using it 24 seven. Understood. They're miserable. Understood. Um, yeah. Okay. So I interrupted so, you when uh, you were saying you got out and you yes. could, we're, ha- wanted, we're having trouble finding a job just to reorient you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, oh, so in my 12 step meeting, I had a gentleman who, said to me, he said, well, if you really need a job, I can get you a job. And I gave him a funny look like, I don't want that kind of job. And he's like, no, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> um, he, he said, there's a factory on the north side of Milwaukee, which isn't the best part of town, mind you, um, that if you really need a job, you know, you can get a job there. And I'm like, I really need a job. Because at that point, I'm a single mother with two kids. I had had before I went to jail, saved up a little money because I sold a car, but um, I had was running out of money, and I was gonna. I didn't know what I was gonna do. Right, I was gonna be in big trouble. So I went to work in this factory. So I go from being a nurse in a hospital, working two twelve-hour shifts a week, to working as a secretary, five eight-hour shifts a week, which was still nice. And then I went to the factory, and I was working night shift at the factory six to seven days a week in the middle of July because this was now a year later from when I first got fired in that first time. Right. Um, and I w- so I worked so hard and it was like $7 an hour whereas this is not really a nurse type wage. Wow. So I had to work my butt off. Yeah. And, um, but I, I was at a point in my recovery where I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to get my life back. So I went to that job and I smiled and I did, I worked my butt off and I worked as best I could. Um, and I worked, had worked there about three months. And then the same gentleman that, you know, gave me a lead on that job said, Hey, I know a doctor who's in the program who needs help at his office. Would you be interested in that? And I'm, yes, yes, I'd like to get out of the factory now. And what we did at the factory is we made engine dipsticks. So my job was to pin together the little handle on the dipstick, that's the oil dipstick. Yep, know? yep. Take the little handle and the metal um, stick part, put them together, put them in the machine, and hit the button to pin it together. Okay. That was my job. Okay. So very different than what I was doing 
before. I'm sure. But like I said, I was, my attitude was good. My, you know, I just, I knew that's what I needed to do. Right. Um, so then gratefully I got to go to the doctor's office. Um, he was in the program. So my family was really worried because they were worried the same thing was going to happen that right. it happened for and that I were calling prescriptions. And, um, but like I said, this doctor was in the same 12 step program as I was. And, um, I was not given access to any of his numbers that you need to call in prescriptions. Um, we were very careful. I said, I don't want access to any of that. Um, you do all that. I will take care of the patients. And, um, it was really a, a very, a really good relationship and a good job for me. And it was about, I worked there for almost two years. And after I'd been there about a year, um, I was also going to intense outpatient therapy and um, counseling, counseling with another nurse who had gone through very similar things. Mm-hmm. And my counselor said, well, what do you think about trying to get your license back? And I said, um, I don't think I can get my license back. I think that's gone forever. Right. She said, well, how do you know that? And I, I said, well, I don't really know that. I just, she said, well, why don't you call him and try? And she was really an awesome woman and we're still friends today. But whatever it was at this point in my life, I decided I needed to listen to other people because I had gotten myself into jail and into the factory. That's where I got myself. Right. So my best thinking was not doing doing me any good. (laughs) So I decided I need to listen to these other people who seem to be happy. They seem to have gotten their lives back. So maybe I should listen to them for a change. So I was committed to doing what other people told me instead of what I thought I should do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I called the nursing board and, and they said, well, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. And then we'll look over everything and we'll let you know. But it is possible. And I just felt so elated that day because I thought, like, I had hope again, you know, for something that really I had lost hope for. I didn't ever think that as a felon, with all this history, anyone would consider giving me a nursing license again. Well, yeah. I mean, it um, was your it was your passion at one time. So you get to get that back. That's awesome. Right. I was so, I was just um, overwhelmed. So it took three months. Um I had to do urine, random urine drug screens. I had to call every day. And if I was chosen to go that day, I had to go within a couple of hours. And I did all that. And they gave me, after three months, a restricted license. So I could work as a nurse with a lot of restrictions and a lot of monitoring. So I still had to do those random drug screens for five more years. I had to go to um, 12-step meetings. I had to go to my therapist weekly. There were a lot of things. And I couldn't work with narcotics. And I couldn't work... Uh, without supervision, I had to be supervised all the time. Lots of monitoring and restrictions, but but I was able to work as a nurse again, and I was just overjoyed. I was so glad. Um, so I went to work at a dialysis center for a while. The doctor's office couldn't keep me as a nurse because they didn't um, have the funds to pay a nurse. So um, I worked, like I said, almost two years there. So it was like another year. I worked as a medical assistant with my nursing license. Um, and I, you know, people would ask me why I didn't go sooner to get a different job, you know, that would pay me a nurse salary. And I, I felt so safe at that doctor's office because he knew me and he knew, uh, I knew that I could go to him. I knew I couldn't BS him. You know, he yeah. knew 
me. I don't know. I just felt so safe there. So it took a while for me to get the courage to go. So once I, he actually had to lay me off. He's like, you know what? You need to go now. You need to move on because there, there are better things that you need to do. Um, so I went to work at a dialysis center. That was not my niche. <laughs> it wasn't my thing to, you know. So I, um, after that, I went to work at a research clinic and I did uh, research nursing for about eight years, which was really exciting. And um, now I work in behavioral health. So I work with children and adolescents um, inpatient at a hospital. Very cool. So, yeah. So in 2007, I got my restricted license back. In 2012, I completed their five-year monitoring program and got my full license back without any restrictions. Wow. So now I have a clean license, so to speak, although you can see all my history. So, you know, when I go to apply for a new job, I have to, of course, be very open about everything. Right. Because when they look at my license, they'll see all that. Anyway. Right. But it sounds um, like the job you have now, because of your history, you're very well qualified for it. Absolutely. And I work some with um, substance abuse with the teenagers. Right. Um, and sometimes I flow to the adult units that deal with that as well. I feel like I'm very well placed where I am right now. That's it's awesome. It's been almost two years that I've been here. Oh, that's awesome. Wonderful. Really. Now, when did you write your book? So in, I'm not sure even what year it was. I would say sometime, maybe 2009. Somewhere around there. Well, what situation my were you counselor. in when you wrote it? Like, where were you well, working? Well, my counselor, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, my, I was seeing my counselor, the same counselor that encouraged me to get my nursing license back. She said to me, she said, why don't you start writing down your story? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, just write your story. I think it would be very therapeutic for you just to kind of get it all out. And I said, Maybe, you know, I just, I wasn't real convinced that that was a good idea. I wasn't big into writing. And so, but like I said, I always did what others told me, those people that I trusted and looked up to told me to do. So I started writing it. Um, and after I got you know, a little ways into it, she said, she said, well, what do you think about publishing it when it's done? And I, I said, well, what do you mean? Like, I couldn't even, like, I, I don't know. I just didn't even... It didn't come, I couldn't comprehend that. And she, she said, well, you know, publish it and, and sell it. You know, put it out there for people to read. And I, I said, well, who would want to read it? Oh, my. And she said, I think a lot of people would yeah. want to read it. Yeah. And, and I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and I said, well, we'll see. And it took me probably three or four years to write the book. Um, I'm not real sure again when exactly when I started. but And when it was done, I thought, all right, well, I'm going to publish it. So my aunt, who's an English teacher, retired, uh, proofread it for me, and I self-published it for Create Space at Amazon uh, in 2015, finally released it. Uh, so that, I mean, just completing that whole process was a huge uh, cathartic thing for me. It I can just, imagine. Uh, it felt like I had accomplished so much, but in just getting all of that down on paper yep. helped me to look at it from a different perspective. Yep. And I wrote the book in the third person, so it was like somebody else telling my story. I saw that. Uh, I was I was reading um I was reading about your book before I talked to you and I thought, this isn't a fiction book though. This is your story. But I, I can say I get it now. So you wrote it in third person. I get it. Yeah. 
And I, I mean, I didn't consciously do that, but um, as I went on, I think I did that to make it a little easier to write. Right. To the, some parts are very difficult. And if I, yep. if I, at least in my mind, was writing it like somebody else saying it, it made it a little easier to yeah. get through. Well, you were kind of a different um, person at that time, so I can see how that would work. I think that, that makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. I get that. Yeah. And your book's available on Amazon, right? It is, yes. It's called An Unlikely Addict. And you also have a website. I do. Unlikely. It's on here. Unlikelyaddict.com. Yeah. Awesome. Um, And I write a blog once every so often, usually focusing. I try to focus on healthcare and addiction, but sometimes I get a little off track because there's so much going on with addiction now. I know, but um, so many important things to. But talk you know, about. the healthcare industry and addiction—it's it, it. You make a very, very good point. We had on the podcast, oh, months ago, um, an anesthesiologist who, yeah. um, you know, had gone through surgery and you know, and then started taking home the extra painkillers from the hospital. Yeah. You know, and she now mm-hmm. makes a point of going around the country and talking to doctors about this subject and and how, you know, pretty much along with everybody, they're at risk, you know, for addiction, you know, and and just because you know, you know, you're a doctor or a nurse, and you know, what addiction is, and what causes it and how it works and all that doesn't mean you are immune to it, you know, so right. That denial is so strong. uh, Yeah, I can just take it this one time, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Understood. Crazy. Understood. It really is a mental, a mental condition. Yep. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your story with our listeners today. I, um, you know, every story is different. It's, you know, there's obviously similarities because addiction does what it does, but everybody's story is different. I think yours will resonate with a lot of people because, you know, so often the um, the graduates of the local rehab program that Jason works at, when we talk to the graduates, you know, they started when they were in middle school or high school and then, you know, progressed from there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always fascinated when there's, a, you know, a completely different story and yours is, it's very different. And um, yeah. Yeah, so I appreciate you talking to us, and I appreciate you writing your book. For the listeners, you can get the book on Amazon. It's called The Unlikely Addict, or you can go to her website, which is unlikelyaddict.com. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Joni. Thanks for letting me tell my story. Absolutely. So the thing I really like about Chris's story is um, similar to the anesthesiologist that we talked to. I mean, here is someone who is a professional in the medical field and, you know, began just taking home fentanyl and abusing fentanyl. And a couple of things she said that I thought were interesting for me, because I don't think we've interviewed anybody that was addicted to fentanyl. She said it is way more addictive than other drugs. And she said it was a way, I think she said it was a way stronger high. I think that was how she put it. And um, just two things that I didn't know about fentanyl. I mean, we know that, you know, people are dying from different drugs laced with fentanyl. But um, yeah, she said it was 
very, very addictive. But she's, you know, she's got her nursing license back. And I think, you know, it's, it's a great story. And her book, again, we talked about it on uh, in the interview, but her book is called The Unlikely Addict. And her website is unlikelyaddict.com. And you can get the book on Amazon. But, um, you know, yeah, a fantastic story. Well, it is. And, and when we when we ha- hear stories like this, I always I always like lean back to Angela's story, because um, these are people who were not, you know, in middle school or high school, starting out smoking weed with their friends, and then eventually moving on to heroin. These are people who, you know, became addicted to drugs, uh, somewhat later in life, even Michael's story was like that, you know, somewhat later in life. And I think that, um, you know, I just think the story will resonate with people. That's absolutely, yeah. yeah. At least it has a happy ending. Exactly. And so that that's always very inspiring and uh, wonderful to hear. Exactly. I, you know, and that is very inspiring because I can see how, you know, I know that, you know, when the students are done with an Arcanon program, obviously they're very positive with their outlook on life, but the fact that she could actually get her nursing license back, I think is huge. And so anybody listening, if you've gone through addiction, you know, you need to know that, you know, if you stay sober, the sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want to do. Do you know? Right. It's just a matter of getting sober and staying sober. So Exactly. Exactly. I think it's a good message. So this is going to go up actually on November 1st, but today we're recording and it's Halloween. And so everybody, please, please stay safe. And then we... Candy bags. Always, always check candy bags before you let your kids eat anything. Yeah. Come to my house. I just have candy bars. That's all I have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, Jason, we'll talk again next week. And there, there you go. Have a good week. Okay. You too. We'll talk to you later. Okay, good. All right, bye. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 